You're listening to Long Distance. I'm Paula Mardo. Okay, real talk. Is it just me, or was 2018 hella Filipino? To find out, I took a little field trip to the Eagle Rock neighborhood of Los Angeles, where there's a homey little restaurant called The Oinkster. I went with my co-producer, partner, whatever, Patrick Capino, and after ordering some food, I asked Patrick, was 2018 hella Filipino? Yeah, I mean, every year with you is hella Filipino. But seriously, was 2018 <laughs> hella Filipino? Really, really, really? Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty Filipino. More so than previous years. It seemed like Filipino food was all over the place. There were a bunch of Filipino films. Uh, a lot of stuff kind of came up and blew up a little bit. So maybe we're a little biased in that, A, we live in Los Angeles, home to the largest population of Filipinos in the U.S., and B, we work in media. But you'd have to be living under a rock if you didn't hear or see or smell or taste anything Filipino this year. I'm going to do like 10 seconds just ambi first, and then I'll start asking you. Case in point, Patrick and I are at the Oinkster, a pretty all-American-looking burger place, and yet to go with my classic cheeseburger, I order an ube shake. Ube being that scrumptious, indescribably dreamy purple yam flavor. Not to be confused with taro. So this is the ube shake. That is heavenly. <laughs> it's really good. Oh, damn. That's, that's pretty good. Ooh. Yeah. And Patrick, he's got the pork adobo burger, a pork patty served on a pandesal bun with house-made pork adobo, garlic aioli, and pico de gallo. That's good. Mm. I don't know about you, but for me, it's hard to imagine a world without Filipino food. But believe it or not, in 2007, it was kind of a big deal when the Oinkster's chef and owner, Andre Guerrero, introduced the Ube Shake in an American restaurant that served fast food-style burgers, Belgian fries, and pastrami sandwiches. It was a hit, and it's been on the menu ever since. It probably didn't hurt that its location in Eagle Rock was, and still is, a pretty Filipino neighborhood. Can I have another sip? Of course. It's kind of funny, right? I mean, ube, it's so Filipino. It's like very much a Filipino flavor. It's different from taro. Google it. Look it up. And now it's actually everywhere. I see it in boba shops. I would argue back in the day, you know, most Americans did not know what ube was. And the oyster could have been one of the first to actually introduce it to a very mainstream American audience. Yep. So the Oinkster is one of several restaurants that helped reimagine what Filipino food could be in America, even if it's not a straightforward Filipino restaurant. You may have heard of some of the popular Filipino restaurants in the U.S. right now. Purple Yam, Maharlika, Lhasa, Bad Saint, Mamsur, The Park's Finest. If you haven't heard of them, chances are you've seen a friend dine at a Filipino spot on your Instagram feed. Or you've read an article or watched a video about Filipino food, hashtag trending. Filipino adobo. But I'm going to share a little twist using a very trendy tuber nowadays, the ube. I found out about this place that does both American barbecue and they do cebuano style with Hold the meat down with your fork and then pull with your spoon. And that's how you cut. We don't need knives. We use those for weapons. 
Those were clips from videos by The Food Network, Taste Made, Eater, and Joe Coy. Earlier this year, the New York Times writer Ligaya Mashan penned an article that literally declared, quote, Filipino food finds a place in the American mainstream. Now, if you're Filipino-American, your reaction to that might be, finally. Sure, we're talking about mostly higher-end Filipino-American or Filipino-inspired fare. And if you and I had a discussion right now about Filipino food, we might debate about how some of us prefer our mom's cooking or tura-tura joints over high-end shops. Shout out Nana Gloria's Kitchenette. But opinions aside, I think this so-called Filipino food movement speaks to the larger phenomenon of Filipino culture finally entering the quote-unquote American mainstream. Yes, there's so much more work to be done, but it's a start. Yep. <laughs> okay, why don't you try the adobo burger? All right. So, with all that said, was 2018 hella Filipino? Instead of answering this for you, I'll show you. Or let you listen to some things. And then maybe you can decide for yourself. In this episode, I'm sharing radio stories I made this past year about Filipino Americans doing their thing in art and commerce. Remember, this season is about Filipinos in America. But I think we're seeing stories like these unfold in different parts of the world, too. The stories you're about to hear were originally produced for public radio programs in the U.S. Some will include new interviews, updates, or never-before-heard tape that didn't make the final cut, because I think those parts might be helpful or even fun to hear. The stories include the making of a Filipina-owned cocktail bar in L.A.'s historic Filipino town, and a Christmas story that has to do with bitter melon. The movie, not the fruit. I mean, vegetable. It'll make more sense when you hear it. But first... Meet Pinay MC, Ruby Ibarra. That's on this episode, Hella Filipino. So on my second verse of Playbills, it goes, Kun pwede la unta ako makakuha hinkwarta para ako makaginhawo o bago batrato ha ako kun mabusag pangang mestisa pat ako netsura tutukita tatut panit basura paggamit ang lahing busag na pintura baganang pelikula at atong kultura pagkita't politika puro nabuba uranhan Yolanda tago ang kwarta ginkuha balig ya waray nakakita kadamon patay nga naluro na bata sekreto na may tinatago kontrata kay ay napakiana isara ipaba ikaunit bala hiran at bahala ayaw kabarak um, <laughs> so that 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 line um it means if only I could have enough money so I could feel comfortable and that goes again with with the story of why my parents wanted to migrate to the US this is Ruby Ibarra, a Filipina-American rapper based in the Bay Area who immigrated from Tacloban City, Philippines as a child. We spoke back in January when she came to L.A. for a show. On her album Circa 91, 
She raps about her family's immigrant experience in English and Filipino dialects like Tagalog and Waray. Ruby talks about making music as a side hustle, even though shortly after this interview, she'd be in a MasterCard commercial with SZA. And she'd have a huge billboard in New York's Times Square. Even she says she can't believe what's happening. I started off as a young kid from Tacloban City who was an immigrant here, didn't really know the language when I first came here, and now I'm in the middle of New York, you know, from a five-feet girl to like a 50-foot picture. This year has been huge for Ruby. She performed in cities across the U.S. and the Philippines, and she released killer music videos, some she directed, like Us with Rocky Rivera, Classy, and Faith Santilla. Island woman dies, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman, rise alamin ang yung ugat. They got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. Nothing on us. And taking names with bamboo and nut. There's some crazy Filipinos in here. But before all this, Ruby started the year with an intimate, electric show in Los Angeles. This radio feature you're about to hear originally aired on KPCC's The Frame. It has bits from that show and Ruby talking about her love for hip-hop, her immigrant story, and making music that is unapologetically Filipino-American. Make some noise one time for B-Rock in the Bay Area, in Tacroma City's very own Ruby Ibarra! My name is Ruby Ibarra, and I'm a rapper and spoken word artist from the Bay Area, California. So I was four years old when I was first introduced to hip-hop. I just remember being in my family's home and watching one of those Filipino variety shows that they show at noon. And the performer on stage, he was rapping, he was dancing, and you know, I think he had like kind of those MC Hammer baggy pants. He went by the name Francis M, the late Francis Magalona. He's one of you know the founding fathers of hip-hop in the Philippines. And I was just completely entranced by his performance. And from that moment on, I just completely fell in love with uh, hip-hop. Francis M, he was very political in his lyrics and socially conscious. So I think we actually came full circle. I try to put important issues and, and topics in the forefront of my lyrics. It started in the Philippines. Francis M to kill a beast till I was 13. Spitting soliloquies on Dilla Beats. Silly me for thinking these. Television imagery representing me. But most these people never look like me. Red, white, I know for my parents, their number one goal was always and will always be me and my sister, you know, getting an education and living a life more comfortable than they ever did in the Philippines. But I think my parents and other immigrant families are never really prepared for the harsh realities that they experience once they come here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I said welcome to the Philippines. My buhai, where we sleep Americana dreams. A new life behind the politics. 
I could see that struggle with my parents and being adult immigrants here and you know still having ties to the homeland and feeling like they were outsiders. Even though I grew up in a, a place like the Bay Area where it's just a melting pot of different races, different cultures, it was still you know inescapable these stereotypes and injustices. Mama, why don't they like me? Comma, they don't look like me. Papa, they ask his ID. Ego, it wants to fight me. Ruby, don't take it lightly. A song like The Other Side, I just wanted to talk about my family's goals and hopes and what they expected to see from America and how the song um, wraps up is, you know, it's not always what you think it's going to be. Let's give it up for Melanin real quick. I always think that it's an important discussion to bring up colorism. It's very prevalent in the Philippine-American communities. You know, we always see all these skin lightning, so skin... Colorism is important to me because I just remember hearing it all the time as a kid. You know, I would play outside in the summers and my aunties would always be like, oh, you're getting dark. You need to look more mestiza. It refers to people who are half Filipino or have a European or Spanish look to them. Auntie says stay in your home. Might get darker because you're prone. Look into the mirror, oh. Filipino blood and bones. Questioning my skin and tone like I should be embarrassed though. Whiter skin is seen as gold. This is what we're always told. There's nothing wrong with being obviously half Pinoy or half Pinay. Having two cultures is beautiful. But at the same time, you know, we don't have equal representation. We need to also embrace the Morenos, Morenas, and the Cayumangis, people that are brown skin. Island woman rise, walang makakatigil. Brown, brown woman rise, alamin ang yung ugat. They got nothing on us. Nothing on us. Us is actually my very favorite song on the album. I wanted there to be female voices. Just having all these strong, badass Pinays representing on the track. Rocky Rivera, Classy, Faith Santia. Pinay version of Beyonce's Formation. That's what instantly popped up in my head. I got that Filipino phenotype. Can you monkey mestizo white? But give me that Moreno like that Rufio Rakino type. My I definitely made it a point to include the other dialects like Tagalog and, and Waray and even sometimes Cebuhano because my dad is from Davao. From a rapper standpoint, Waray and Tagalog I feel are very percussive. I felt like it was perfect for hip-hop. It just completes the story if I also tell it from those languages. It's beautiful languages that people need to hear. I'm not here to say that my experience, especially in the album, you know, it's like the definitive Filipino-American experience. It's just one lens, one glimpse of the story. And that's why I hope that other artists or other voices out there speak their stories. There needs to be more visibility and representation. If people want to call this activism, then so be it. At the end of the day, I just want to speak music that's real and that's true. I made that dollar from a peso. Watch me make it rain. Watch me, watch me make it rain. This story originally aired on KPCC's The Frame. Ruby Ibarra's music is available on all digital platforms and at rubyibarra.com. We started this episode with Filipino food. So how about some drinks? This next story is set in Los Angeles, where Filipino food is heating up. But the future of the city's historic Filipino town neighborhood is not so certain. Enter Geneva, 
a cocktail bar owned by a group of Filipino-American women who are working to invest in their local community. I spoke with the Geneva ladies earlier this year for a story that originally aired on KCRW's Good Food and was made possible by the Independent Producer Project. Starting a small business is not easy, but these ladies have a plan. On a cool night in L.A.'s historic Filipino town, patrons gather for the opening of a charming new bar on Beverly Boulevard called Geneva. This one goes to you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. picture, picture, picture. Michael Nailat and his wife, Elaine Delalas, take pictures of their Instagram-worthy cocktails. I got the Major Tom because it's named after the David Bowie, yeah, song, so... <laughs> Mike and his wife have lived in historic Filipino town for over 10 years. Like many here tonight, they supported the Kickstarter campaign that helped launch Geneva, a modern speakeasy specializing in gin cocktails and inspired by its community. Drinks are infused with Filipino flavors like citrus calamansi, gelatinous sago pearls, and ampalaya, or bitter melon. There's a painting of a brown-skinned Filipino flapper prominently displayed on a wall, and names of Kickstarter supporters are scrawled in secret spots around the room. Every detail carefully crafted by the owners, three Filipino women with deep roots in this community. Like, Geneva, to me, is really important because this bar is run by three, you know, women, three Filipino women, who want to invest in their community, right? But then, like, if you ask somebody else, does this neighborhood need a bar? I don't know. But, I mean, I feel like it's truly a demonstration of what people investing in a community can look like. Right? Does this neighborhood really need this? And what will this do for the community? These are some of the questions being asked about the many developments popping up in an area some developers are calling Rampart Village or North Westlake. But to many locals and to the Filipino community of L.A., this is historic Filipino town, also known as Hi-Fi. Goodness gracious, great balls of fire. Home to a bustling Filipino community in the 50s and 60s, remnants of Hi-Fi's rich cultural history are fading fast. Though there are still plenty of Filipino residents, and Filipinos are one of the largest Asian groups in L.A. County, Hi-Fi is now predominantly Latino. New developments like expensive apartment buildings and Hollywood production offices are raising concerns about gentrification and displacement. But Geneva is doing business differently. Like Mike said, it's run by three Filipinas who want to invest in their community. Outside the bar, one of the owners, Roselma Samala, explains why they chose this location. We wanted to be close to downtown, but not in downtown. As we are looking, historic Filipino town was building as a business development zone and had opportunities for small businesses to come in. And so we thought it would be a good opportunity for us as three Filipinas to come back to the community. Rusalma is Geneva's CFO. She was born in Long Beach, raised in Orange County, and lived much of her adult life in L.A. Her partners are CEO Patricia or Trisha Perez. I was born in Manila, Philippines and was raised here in Los Angeles. And COO Christine Sue Miller, who goes by Tanette. I was also born in the Philippines and raised in Los Angeles. So this is all so very familiar. And a lot of the people who came through, uh, especially during the soft opening days, are local. Rosalma, Trisha, and Tanette met as college students at UCLA where they got involved with local Filipino groups. Tanette and Trisha have been part of folk dance collective Kayamanan ng Lahi for over 20 years. Rosalma was a member too, and in college she interned at Search to Involve Filipino Americans, or SIPA, a nonprofit just two blocks from the bar, where Tanette and Trisha's dance group 
used to practice. Rosalma says starting a business here was a way to give back to a community that taught them so much. We're not here trying to gentrify in the negative sense, but bring business in and highlight the history of this area and um, our connection to the community. The best friends dreamed up Geneva over drinks on New Year's Day, 2013. Now their dream is a reality, that they have to balance with full-time jobs and other responsibilities. After her day job, Tanette heads over to Geneva to manage deliveries. So today we're getting in produce and other dry goods and our cleaning supplies. So now we're going to wait to get the keys. <laughs> the keys to open up the shop were misplaced after a busy night. Like any new business, there are some things they're still working on. Yesterday, I guess everyone was just multitasking as usual. After some waiting, a bartender drops off the keys and the bar is finally open. Later, there's a mix-up in the rug order, and the produce delivery comes in really late. But Tanette says these are all growing pains for a new business. Before this, they spent months on research and financial models. When they finally found a space for their bar, the real hard work began. So for you to get a permit to change the use of a space in the city of L.A., you have to go through a hearing and for you to go through a hearing, you got to make sure that the people around you are in agreement, so to speak, with the type of business that you're going to bring into their community. This isn't a requirement, but it helps with the permit process. So Tanette and the other owners walked around the neighborhood. They went door to door, met neighbors, introduced themselves, told people what kind of business they were starting, asked for letters of support. Tanette says some residents didn't understand what they were doing at first. Some were worried about noise or parking. Many of the residents were older Filipinos who'd lived there since the 50s. The idea of a cocktail lounge really didn't resonate with them. So what we did was we had a get-together at the Search to Involve Filipino Americans, and we had an open forum and invited everybody to come there so they could ask all the questions that they needed to and so that they could understand what we were going through, what we wanted to do here, and that, you know, this is a cocktail bar that they could walk into and it would be their neighborhood place. Their transparency helped quell neighbors' fears, and they eventually got the permit they needed. Tanette says their deep roots in the community helped a lot. She gets emotional talking about their long journey to get here. There's a lot of gratitude because we've come a long way. <laughs> and we've gone through a lot of things and we, we go through a lot of things together. And I think that's why this works. They went through many challenges as business owners and as friends. When they started construction last year, Trisha experienced a devastating loss. I was six months pregnant. It was March 17 on a Friday of last year. It was St. Patrick's Day. I went for an ultrasound with my husband and the tech. She said, oh, when was the last time you felt your baby? And my heart dropped. We were just stunned. Trisha's child died in utero. Three days later, they induced labor. It was considered a stillbirth. I became a mother. It's transformed me forever. Trisha celebrated her child's birth anniversary while opening the bar. On top of being Geneva's CEO, she runs two other restaurants and has a full-time job. Working with friends provides a different kind of support. Community programs have helped too, like the Asian Pacific Islander Small Business Program, which helps small businesses like Geneva. The program is a collective of API community groups. Geneva worked with the Chinatown Service Center for their planning and zoning hearings. 
Moving forward, they're working with SIPA. Trying to set them up more into business success. That's Fiji Nikar Victoriano, SIPA's small business counselor. What are the goals? What are the things that they have to think about when it comes to financing and then how to grow their business? Fiji works with Filipino small business owners like pastry chef Isa Fabro and Frankie Lucy Bake Shop. Her goal is to bring Filipino businesses back into hi-fi, to be part of the narrative unfolding in the neighborhood. The key to success? Build community. A lot of the business owners that I work with, if it's a brick-and-mortar shop, you know, if it's something that you can go to and visit, they really have these, like, very inclusive vibe. It's not a grab-and-go kind of place. It's always building the community and making sure that they're a local shop in the neighborhood. And, you know, they're approachable and they do good business. One evening, Geneva hosts a neighborhood open house. They invite friends, residents, business owners, and community members who've supported them along the way. Like Joel Jacinto, a public works commissioner, former executive director of SIPA, and longtime friend. Things are flowing in historic Filipino town. Things are happening. And so I'm absolutely thrilled to help amplify what's going on here at Geneva, the most beautiful gin bar in L.A. Ron Fong, executive director of the Asian Pacific Islander Small Business Program, says that Geneva's community focus really helped them succeed. There are a lot of bars and restaurants that go into neighborhoods that really have no sense of where they're going into or what the history is of this community. But these three women know about the history here. They know about the strong Filipino community here. Mike Yee, one of the owners of recently opened Tactile Coffee down the street, says he's excited about all the new businesses coming to the neighborhood. Geneva Bar is opening up, and next door, a restaurant called Vaca Burger is going to open up, and they're going to bring another different kind of clientele. I'm personally excited. When council member Mitch O'Farrell arrives, Congratulations. Yes. he presents a city certificate of recognition. Patricia, Christine, and Roselma, the, the, the uh, owners and creators of this wonderful, inviting, beautiful cocktail lounge. This is just a token of uh, our gratitude, uh, celebrating the opening of Geneva. Thank you! For the councilmen and many people here, Geneva represents a new chapter in historic Filipino town. Those are Angelinos investing in Los Angeles, in an area that has actually seen investment pass it by. And I would say this will be very strongly supported by locals who live in this community. So the story here is not one of displacement or gentrification. It's one of investment and helping to build a stronger local economy. The thing is, there have been a number of businesses that have invested in hi-fi over the years. Geneva's neighbors include a diverse array of small businesses, like a traditional sushi restaurant that's been here since 1976, a Filipino restaurant serving sea logs on banana leaf-lined plates, an art gallery, a Mexican mercado, a 7-Eleven, a hair salon, and a few blocks down, the original Tommy's Hamburgers. Hi-Fi is a microcosm of Los Angeles, and Tanette, Trisha, and Roselma knew they wanted to be part of this evolving neighborhood when they drew up their business plan in 2013. They put in a lot of hard work, but Tanette was still surprised to get the certificate tonight. That was so exciting! It's such a big certificate! <laughs> I didn't know that was happening. Rosalma reads it aloud. On behalf of the City of Los Angeles and the 13th Council District, I would like to recognize Geneva for your outstanding service and positive contribution to the great cultural melting pot of the city. 
They can't stop the changes taking place in historic Filipino town, but they can be part of its narrative. For Patricia, that means a lot. That we're here in this neighborhood, that we're here part of the Los Angeles city, that we are here to help change things for the better. For these friends and entrepreneurs, positive changes are all part of the plan. And they're just getting started. Came out too loud, drives a girl insane. You broke my will, but what a trail. Goodness gracious, great bowls of fire. This story originally aired on KCRW's Good Food and was made possible by the Independent Producer Project. Geneva, by the way, is still doing their thing in Hi-Fi. There's a happy hour now and an ever-changing menu of tasty cocktails. So if you're of the drinking age, I suggest you stop by. And while you're at it, get to know the neighborhood and L.A.'s Filipino roots. Coming up, did you know there's a Filipino-American Christmas movie that played in theaters and is now available on digital platforms? And it's dark and weird and fun and sad and awesome. It's called Bitter Melon, and you'll hear all about it after the break. Hey, Patrick. Yo. Do you like the podcast Long Distance? Yeah. Then consider helping the show. I like it. How? There are lots of ways to help. You can share long distance with friends or family in real life or on social media. Oh, damn. Don't forget to use the hashtag longdistanceradio or tag at longdistanceradio so we can like and share. Hashtag will do. You can also rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That helps a lot. Done did. Five stars. And if you're feeling extra generous this holiday season, consider donating to support the production of the show. You can find more information on this at longdistanceradio.com slash donate. www.alreadydidthat.com Donations will cover things like podcast platform fees, website fees, transportation, and other production needs. If you have questions or are interested in becoming a show sponsor, hit me up at hello at longdistanceradio.com Merry Christmas or Malagayang Pasko At Manigong Bagong Taon. Happy New Year. Now back to the show. H.P. Mendoza is a San Francisco-based independent writer and director whose work includes films like Colma the Musical, Colma stays fast as a tortoise, Colma stays light with mortis, Colma stays as popular as Tybo, Colma stays but I have to go. Fruit Fly and I Am a Ghost. 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 They're kind of a mix of comedy, musicals, horror, which makes total sense if you've seen them or have met HP. His latest film is Bitter Melon. <laughs> Tell Lisa about that video we did about how to talk with a Filipino accent. Seriously, that could go viral. Uh, no one even knows what a Filipino is. Oh, everyone knows at least one, and they all expect us to know each other. Well, don't we, though? <laughs> a Filipino-American family comes together for Christmas. Things don't go as planned. Did you get drunk last night? I just had a couple of drinks, that's it. Troy got drunk. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. He first started writing the script in 1997. 21 years later, the film is finally finished and out in the world. It played in select theaters last week and is currently available on digital platforms like iTunes and Amazon. 
So yeah, after you listen to this, go watch it. Full disclosure, my co-producer Patrick Capino is in the movie. He's a filmmaker and actor in real life. Surprise. So I've watched this movie many times. It's got all the elements of your typical Filipino family reunion. Lots of laughs, food, karaoke. And then it gets dark. Does Troy hit you? I'm going to share parts of a recent interview with HP. Then I'll play a story I produced about Bitter Melon. Before we start, I want to give you a heads up. The story includes some discussion of physical abuse that might be hard to listen to for some people, especially around little kids. Here's HP. So the earliest memory I have of Christmas, I don't even know if it's the earliest, because you know how like your childhood memories are all kind of nonlinear. The only reason I think it's my earliest is because I remember the big deal that my family made about this being the first Christmas that I would experience with the whole family in the house. Because my mom had 11 brothers and sisters, they all had kids and they were all there. And But it was the house that belonged to my mother and father. So it was our house. In Excelsior? In the Excelsior district at 624 La Grande Avenue, like right down the hill from that big blue tower. And um, I remember my oldest brother, Joe, I don't know if I could do this. I'm sorry. HP doesn't normally talk like that, but today is a pretty emotional day. We're in a hotel room in San Diego, California, here for the San Diego Asian Film Festival, where just the night before, HP won the festival's coveted Best Narrative Feature Award for Bitter Melon, a fitting end to a long year of festival screenings and over two decades of working on what might be his most ambitious film to date. So yeah. It's been a day. But still, I didn't expect that response from HP when I asked him to recount his earliest Christmas memory. He actually told me the story the day before, super casually. I wasn't recording. But for some reason, things are different now. So I asked him another question. Why'd you set your movie during Christmas? He says, that is a good question. That question has never been asked. And I think I set it during Christmas time because of the story. Then HP tries to tell me that story again. He doesn't finish. He can't. Without going into too much detail, it involves some very serious instances of physical abuse that HP witnessed as a child, at about four or five years old, on his first big Christmas. While this scene isn't in the movie, Bittermelon is based on the experiences of HP's own family that has dealt with domestic violence and abuse. Reception to the movie has been sort of controversial. There are people who love the film, relate to it, and then there are people who don't. Thing is, HP makes movies that don't always fit in perfect little boxes with nice happy endings. And making a movie about such a controversial topic is complicated and, in my opinion, brave. I first talked to HP about Bitter Melon back in May, right before the film premiered, At that time, he told me he hadn't really figured out his big message yet or his big spiel about the movie, that it would take more time, more screenings and festivals until he'd figure it out. So last month, in that San Diego hotel room, before his very last festival screening of the film, I asked him, what's your bitter melon spiel? I think really what it is, is this movie is about a touchy subject I personally believe is being slightly mishandled by the media. 
because the media is all about making movies about domestic abuse, simple good versus evil stories that make you feel really good at the end, right? These movies are almost designed to make you believe that there's a solution out there and it gets better. I don't think I've ever seen a domestic abuse movie that shows what actually happens when you get a restraining order, right? Like, I've lived through restraining orders, you know, like with various women in my family. I do feel like I'm not going to say I'm going to shine a light on it, but I'm going to give it my own personal take. If you want to hear my take on it, this is what Bitter Melon's about. And after I gave that acceptance speech last night, I do realize that I now know exactly why I made Bitter Melon and why I make all the stuff that I do. All the stuff I do and make, whether it's my movies or like the video game art that I do, or my music. Everything I do is a plea for empathy. So that was HP before his very last festival screening of Bitter Melon, right before it released in theaters and on digital platforms. This next and final story is about the making of Bitter Melon, and it takes place at one of Bitter Melon's very, very first screenings ever. It was a sneak preview at the LA Asian Pacific Film Festival. This story originally aired on KPCC's The Frame, Reminder, my co-producer Patrick Capino is in the film, so the story starts with him. When my partner Patrick Capino told me he was going to be in a movie, I was excited. He's a writer, director, and actor, but this was personal. It's a film about people like us, sort of. The film is called Bitter Melon. It's a tragic comedy. In which a Filipino-American family conspires to kill a member who's been terrorizing them for years. He's named Troy. And I play Troy. Days before a sneak preview screening, I have to ask. Do you feel any pressure at all? Not pressure. I am a little anxious, to be honest. We'll see if I uh, need to take several bathroom breaks during the screening. Fast forward to preview night, and we're in a theater lobby in Hollywood. While Patrick calms his nerves and takes a bathroom break, I catch up with the film's writer-director. Hi, my name is H.P. Mendoza, and I'm the director of Bittermelon. How are you feeling right now? What adjective incorporates the word butterfly or butterflies? I'm butterflies-ish. How's that? HP's previous work includes the horror film I Am a Ghost and Coma, the musical. But Bitter Melon is his most personal project, and the title refers to Ampalaya, a Philippine tropical vegetable with a bitter flavor, a fitting name for a film where characters act in ways that can be hard to swallow. I do feel like it's a dark comedy because we are asking you to laugh at this really grotesque thing that happens, right? But we do honor the drama of it, so it is actually kind of sad. Like a good Filipino family, Bitter Melon begins with a party. Declan Santos heads home to spend the holidays with his family in San Francisco. When he arrives, he's greeted by his brother Troy, who still lives at home. Who the f*** is ringing the doorbell? Sorry, we didn't know if anybody was home. Uh... <laughs> I'm just f***ing with you, man. What's up, Dad? The family walks on eggshells around Troy. He physically abuses his wife and scares his daughter. Things are so bad that when Declan talks to his mom, he brings up an idea that could end his brother's reign of terror for good. Why don't we kill Troy? <laughs> Declan! That's sick. How would we do it? HP assures no real people were harmed in the making of this movie. But it is based on his real-life experiences, and the characters modeled after his real family. He's been working on this for over 20 years, and his mother just recently gave her blessing to talk about the issues the film brings up, like the physical abuse she endured with HP's estranged father. 
Patrick's character, Troy, embodies a lot of their deep-rooted problems. I like the fact that HP makes his own kinds of films, and I think he touches on things that a lot of Filipino families, a lot of Filipino-American families, too, don't talk about. Like many Asian immigrant groups, Filipino-American families tend to sweep things under the rug. So when the characters in Bitter Melon do the opposite, it's cathartic, thrilling, sometimes confusing. HP says it's like when he first saw Better Luck Tomorrow. I'll be completely honest, I was excited when Better Luck Tomorrow came out. I'm like, there's a Filipino lead character. Four cheat sheets a day, the drugs, the scams. Between this and all my club commitments, I couldn't even start my homework until 1 a.m. Directed by Fast and the Furious Helmer Justin Lin, Better Luck Tomorrow is about a group of Asian-American high school students breaking the law while keeping good grades. Imagine growing up with that, right? And then suddenly being confronted with this movie where you have a bunch of Filipinos. Your mind goes places while you're watching it. There are side characters, but the leads are also Filipino. I don't know what to do with that. And then on top of that, there are no model minorities. HP faced challenges making a film with Asian-American actors who didn't portray stereotypes like the overachieving model minority. At test screenings, one person said the cast all looked the same, so he couldn't tell them apart. Another suggested recasting the whole thing. I know you're saying this is a Filipino-American story, but there's nothing specifically Filipino-American about it. Have you considered shooting this movie with regular people? This reminds me of what happened in 2002, when Better Luck Tomorrow had its premiere at the Sundance Film Festival. During the Q&A, an audience member asked if it was irresponsible to portray Asian-Americans negatively. The late film critic Roger Ebert got up to respond. Here's some tape from that moment. What I uh, find very offensive and condescending about your statement is nobody would say to a bunch of white filmmakers, how could you do this to your people? Yeah. Yes, film has the right to be about being these people, and Asian-American characters have the right to be whoever the hell they want to be. They do not have to represent their people. That legendary moment helped launch Justin Lin's career. But in 2018, Asian Americans are still subject to stereotypes. Now Bittermelon is subverting them. After the screening, audience members trickle into the lobby to greet Patrick. So much love for you, man. Oh, it's, man. It's, Dude, appreciate that. And to chat with HP. Being a Filipino-American myself, it was just a breath of fresh air to see my family on screen and to see a character that is Filipino-American specific that I can relate to. It's about damn time. Overall, the screening went really well. Sure, I'm a little biased, but I've watched Patrick work on this since he first got the script over a year ago. When I check in with HP the next day, he says the most important feedback he's received has been from the Filipino-American community. I know I want everyone to be moved, but there's something special knowing the Filipino-Americans are like, no, but there's a little something here. Like, you actually get this. I like being told by, quote-unquote, my people that I get it. Turns out that night was just a taste of what was to come. A week later, Bitter Melon premiered to sold-out crowds in Oakland and San Francisco, and it screened at film festivals across the country. Last week, it was released in select theaters. It's now available on digital platforms like iTunes and Amazon. So after listening to this episode, look it up and watch it. Or head to bittermelonfilm.com for more information. The story first aired on KPCC's The Frame. The song you're hearing right now is from the film Colma the Musical, written and performed by H.P. Mendoza. One day I'll find my happy place 
And I'm determined that I'm never gonna find my way back up My way back up That's it for this episode. Oh, and was 2018 hella Filipino? I leave it to you to decide. To me, the answer is pretty obvious. But also, I think every year is hella Filipino. One day I'll find my happy place And maybe then I'll find a person who can curl up in my heart In my heart One day I'll find my happy place And I'll forget that I was ever in a world that fell apart Somewhere beyond the clouds and open air My heart is stopping I don't care, I know that I'll be there One step at a time I find This episode was written, mixed, and produced by me, Paul Amardo. Co-producer is Patrick Epino. Cover art is by Selena Kalma, with title design by me. Theme song is by Sea Light and the Prisms. Music in this episode is by D. Yan Key, Dinah Dominguez, Francis Magalona, H.P. Mendoza, Lee Rosevere, Rosie Plaza, and Ruby Ibarra. I want to share scenes from the next episode with you. But first, we made it to episode three. Thanks for listening. You've heard my whole spiel about supporting long distance, so please think about sharing, reviewing, or donating. Head to longdistanceradio.com slash donate for more info. Every little bit goes a long way. Yep. And don't forget to follow the socials. Long Distance is on Instagram at longdistanceradio. There's also a Facebook group called Long Distance Radio Club, and if groups aren't your thing, there's a Facebook page you can like for updates and all that stuff. Now on the next episode of Long Distance. And I remember this uh, young lady who was saying that she was from Our Lady of Little Grammar School in Filipino town in the 40s. And I remember saying that the most beautiful girl in that class was, um, help me, babe. Rita Hernandez. <laughs> Rita Hernandez, that's and what I, I said. I <laughs> stood up to him, I said, she was not, I was the prettiest girl in that class. That was a gotcha. That's next time. See you next month on the 15th. Thanks for listening. And I will show you.